0: I now can sing since I've been redeemed. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. I faith in Christ, my Redeemer King. I'm on the everlasting, everlasting rock. This is the voice of hope. Then roll, roll, billows roll. I'm on the everlasting rock of ages. Roll, roll on the everlasting
1: rock. Are you anchored firmly on the everlasting rock of ages as the men sang? I hope you are. This is the Voice of Hope. I'm J. Mark Horst, your friend and Bible teacher. This program is produced by Heralds of Hope, an international ministry sharing the good news of Jesus Christ around the world in English and 25 other languages. The teaching you hear on this program is used by our translators and producers in other parts of the world to create our international program, Pope for Today. Last week, I shared an introduction to my series of teaching on the Gospel of Mark. Today, we'll get into the beginning of the text, so I hope you can stay with me. Preparation is an important and significant part of any task that we perform. Think about the construction of a major highway. There are engineering studies and environmental studies, soil studies, public hearings, and there's an extensive permitting process, and the list goes on and on. And all of those preparations have to be made before one cubic foot of earth is moved. When I'm given a task or a responsibility to fulfill, I want to know what's expected of me. Whether it's preaching, or traveling, or building a piece of furniture, Making adequate preparation helps me to feel like I'm in control of the situation. I hate to feel that I'm not properly prepared. And the Bible teaches us that preparations are important to God, too. In Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul wrote, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, now listen, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So the preparations for your salvation and mine and our service were made even before God created the world. To me, that's both amazing and reassuring. Hebrews 11.7 says that Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. And just before his final feast of the Passover with his disciples, Jesus sent them into the city ahead of time to prepare. There are so many other examples of preparation in the scripture that we could list. In the opening verses of his gospel, Mark lays out the preparation God made before Jesus began his public ministry. And this theme of preparation is repeated numerous times in the first eight verses. So because of this emphasis, I've titled today's teaching, Preparing the Way. Our text is Mark chapter 1 and verses 1 through 8, so listen carefully for this theme of preparing as I read these verses from the Holy Scripture. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In this text, we find several essential aspects of preparing the way for the gospel. And while the historical situation is unique, these aspects are universally applicable. The first essential aspect of preparing the way is the mandate. Mark begins his gospel with a simple statement of the facts. He is sharing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is his mandate. It's his authorization to give us a written record of the life and ministry of Jesus. Fast-moving and sometimes abrupt we see evidence of Peter's influence as Mark wrote his record of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, in contrast to Matthew and Luke's account, Mark completely passes over Jesus' earthly family and the fact that he was an ancestor of the great King David. And he doesn't go back to the account of creation like John does in his record. These things seem to indicate that Mark was writing primarily for a Gentile audience. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the good tidings of great joy for all people that the angels revealed to the shepherds in Luke's account. The name Jesus is the Hebrew Yeshua, or the English Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation, and it was a very common name. But then Mark added Christ, Christos, or the Hebrew Mashiach. This is translated as Messiah, or the Anointed One. And there were many prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures that spoke of this coming Messiah, but Mark doesn't go there. He just skips over them, and he simply takes Jesus' identity as Messiah as a fact. And then he further states that Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is the Son of God. In other words, Jesus Christ is God Himself in human form. And Paul confirms that for us in Colossians chapter two nine, where he wrote, "In Him, that's Jesus, dwells all the fullness." Of the Godhead in bodily form. Now, even though Mark begins his record so abruptly, he does acknowledge that Jesus didn't burst onto the scene without warning. And so, in the next couple of verses, he provides two quotes from two different Old Testament prophets. And these are the only direct quotes from the Hebrew Scriptures that Mark makes. These prophecies are part of the mandate. The first prophecy is a partial quote from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now contrast that with what Mark wrote. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Did you catch it? The switch from Malachi's before me to Mark's before you? To me, this is a confirmation of the deity of Christ. And then the second prophecy is a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Again, let's compare them. Isaiah wrote, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Mark exclaims, A voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then he adds the phrase, Make his paths straight. Now, the word paths means a beaten track or a road. Think about the Roman road system of Mark's time. It enabled the royal messengers to pass back and forth carrying the proclamations of the emperor or the local governor. So, the mandate for this prophetic messenger was that he was to remove any obstacles that would hinder the proclamation of the gospel message. In both of these prophecies, a way is being prepared. It's no wonder then that Jesus said of himself, I am the way. And he also pointed out to us the differences that result from following the narrow way to life or the broad way to destruction. While the coming of Jesus in human form was a one-time historical event, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is still our mandate as his followers today. We are his messengers, and we are tasked with removing the obstacles to his message. What are those obstacles, and how can we remove them? We'll get more into the details of that as we move farther into the text. But for now, we should ponder the question, what am I doing to prepare the way of the Lord so that others can follow him? Am I obeying this mandate? The next essential aspect, then, of preparing the way is the messenger. Very simply, a message needs a messenger. Preparation involves a person, or it involves people. In preparing the way for Jesus and his message, that person was John, and not just any John, but the baptizing one, and that distinguishes him from many others who had that same name and lived during that same time. So he came, just as the prophets had declared. And his coming was not just an event, but it signaled the beginning of a new era, or we might say a new dispensation. In Mark's narrative, John the Baptist seems to come out of nowhere. He just appears on the scene. But he was, in the words of the Apostle John, a man sent from God. So he appeared in the wilderness and he began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For now, let's just bypass the message and continue our focus on the messenger. The response to this unusual messenger was electric. He goes from an unknown person who appears in the wilderness in a short time to somewhat of a celebrity. And as the word of this unusual man and his unusual ministry spread, day by day a steady stream of people from all over the Judean countryside and the city of Jerusalem were trekking out into the wilderness to see this amazing sight. Jerusalem was about 20 miles west of where John was baptizing people in the Jordan River. And remember, this is the wilderness, so this was no easy walk in the park, as we say. And John's appearance was exceptional. It seems that his rugged persona was perhaps a drawing factor. It identified him as a prophet in the mold of Elijah. The text tells us that his clothing was made from the crudest kind of rough cloth, from camel's hair. It was secured around his waist with a leather belt. It seems John didn't have any concerns about the pretense of comfort or style that's often so important to society. And later on, Jesus reminded his listeners that John's rugged lifestyle was part of what made him appealing. In the Judean wilderness, there's not much to eat. It's a very barren area. I've been there. I've seen it. But the text tells us that part of John's diet consisted of locusts. A couple of years ago, when we had the 17-year locust here in the eastern United States, my son gathered some of the larvae and some of the adult insects, and he fried them, and he and his siblings ate them. So they do provide some nutrition. And then further, because of the rugged terrain in this area, bees make their nests in the crevices of the rocky cliffs. And some Bedouins, even today, make a living by gathering and selling that honey. So honey was another significant part of John's very spartan diet. John's physical appearance evidently fit the mold of what people in that time expected of a prophet. To them, he looked like a prophet. Today, a person like John would most likely be scorned and made the butt of jokes by the religious and the unreligious alike. But you know, it's a fact that genuine messengers of the Lord will always be looked at as somewhat counter-cultural. That's because our first loyalty is not to any kingdom of this world. Our first loyalty is to Jesus and his kingdom. So John was preaching, and Paul asks the question in Romans 10:14, and how shall they hear without a preacher? Now, incidentally, the word preacher doesn't mean an ordained person or a pastor. It simply means a messenger. So you and I are the messengers of the Lord today. Like John, we will in some cases seem out of touch with modern sensibilities. Like him, we'll need to take a stand for truth even if it endangers our possessions or our security and maybe even our physical lives. John was not a reed shaken in the wind. You may recall that his refusal to compromise the truth about the permanence of marriage eventually caused him to lose his head to Herod. So. What kind of messenger are you? What kind of messenger am I? Do we understand the clear calling of God on our lives? Are you and I willing to proclaim the hard truths of God's word in spite of what it might cost us? Are we willing to forgo some of the comforts of this world, some of its approval, some of its acclaim, in order that we can have the approval of the one who sent us and gave us our mandate? The final aspect, then, of preparing the way is the message. For John the Baptist, being the messenger of the Lord and preparing the way for him meant that he had a specific message. What was John's message, and how does it apply to you and me today? The text says he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism for forgiveness? What are we to make of that? Well, According to the law, if you needed forgiveness, you went to the temple, and you presented a sacrifice or an offering. God's priest took your sacrifice, and he presented it to the Lord. For John to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins indicates that he was either a religious lunatic, or he actually was a prophet from God. As I said earlier, John was preparing the way for a new dispensation. We know from the whole scope of New Testament teaching that baptism isn't the means of obtaining forgiveness for sins. In fact, baptism isn't even necessary for forgiveness. I would add, however, that it is an important part of our obedience. What John was preaching was a baptism characterized by repentance. The baptism was an outward expression of something that was happening in the inside of the person who was responding. And that was a truly repentant heart. The word repentance is metanoia. Meta means change, and noia means mind or perspective. So repentance is changing your way of thinking. Baptism wasn't something that was foreign to John's audience. It was already used, especially by the Jews, for proselytes or those who converted to Judaism. The importance of cleansing the body was well understood and practiced at that time. During our trip to Israel, we saw many ritual baths called mikvahs in Qumran and then also in the ruins that surround the Temple Mount. So what were all these people doing who were flocking out of Jerusalem and Judea to see this unusual prophet? Verse 5 says they were being baptized in the Jordan and confessing their sins. So this wasn't a ritual bath. Something was happening in their hearts. Something was changing. Confession of sin is simply agreeing with God about how he sees my sin. Our sin is ugly. It's repulsive. It separates us from him. Confession is the evidence of repentance. No confession, no repentance. No repentance, no confession. The Apostle John reminds us in his letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, like the tax collector in Luke 18.13, we pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, an important part of this confession was that it was public. It seems to me that the confession and the baptism were happening simultaneously. You know, sunlight is an effective disinfectant. As long as sin is hidden, it grows and spreads. Public confession provides accountability. And it was also a personal, individual confession. There were times in Israel's history where there was national confession, but this was personal. Each one who came to John's baptism was acknowledging that their old way of living was unfit for the coming kingdom. Their sins were obstructing the path to salvation. And so, to prepare the way for the Lord, their sins needed to be removed. Their baptism was an outward sign of inner change, and it's still the same today. Today we're told, come to Jesus just as you are. You know what? That's true. But it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is that you need to confess your sins, agreeing with what God says about them. And that confession is motivated by repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, and a change of direction. So you can come to Jesus just as you are. But he loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. You can't come to Jesus and continue living in rebellion against his commands. Genuine heart change will give you a desire to obey him, to live for his glory. And you will also give him the freedom to remove anything from your life that is displeasing to him. John choosing the Jordan as the site of his baptism hold some additional truth for us. Remember that many centuries before this, Joshua and the people of Israel crossed this same river after they had been wandering aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't believe God's promises. When that generation had all died, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, then they were able to enter in to the promised inheritance. In our text, those who were being baptized by John were also leaving behind the aimless wandering of their old way of life. They were entering into the promise of God's coming kingdom. So the Jordan River became a symbol of leaving the old way and entering into the new way. But there's one more facet to John's proclamation, his message preparing the way. He said, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. From reading this account, I believe the people were somewhat in awe of John. After all, there hadn't been a prophet of the Lord in Israel since the prophet Malachi, and that was several hundred years before this. But John was a humble man, and the other gospel accounts confirm that for us. He said, Someone is coming after me. Who is much more powerful than I am. He is so far superior to me that I am not even worthy to stoop down and untie the strap on his sandal. Now, in the custom of that time, unloosing the sandals of a guest was a job that was given to the lowest slave in the household. Mark is the only one who gives us this detail regarding the unloosing of the sandal strap. I'd say John the Baptist modeled the message he was proclaiming. But he wasn't finished yet. He said, I have baptized you in water, but he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That was a prophetic message. It was something that was still in the future. John's baptism was certainly meaningful, but it was only symbolic. It was pointing forward to something much more powerful and something much more enduring, the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, let's review these essential aspects of preparing the way of the Lord. John's mandate was given to him by God. From his mother's womb, he was set apart for a special mission. You and I have the same mandate, and we must never forget it. We are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then John came as a messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. While you may not have the same mission, or the same impact, or the same visibility that John did, as a follower of Christ, you too have been called to be a messenger for him, and so have I. Paul wrote about you and me in Ephesians chapter 4. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in chapter 1 of that same letter, Paul writes that we were chosen by God before the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing? It is, and it's also humbling. Why me? Why did God choose me? And then finally, we have been given a message. A message that the world desperately needs. It's the same message that the apostles preached. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he wrote it this way. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. John the Baptist came preparing the way for Messiah's first coming. How are you and I preparing the way for Messiah's return?
0: The world was in darkness, in sin and shame. Mankind was lost, and then Jesus came. He carried our sins to Calvary's tree. He hung there and bled there for you and me. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord. For making me whole Thank you, Lord, for giving to me Thy great salvation so rich and free Lord Jesus came down from his throne on high Ready to live and willing to die for all of the pain and suffering he bore, i love him and thank him for
1: today's teaching has informed and encouraged you. If you'd like to review it or share it with someone else, you can request a copy. It's available either in print or as a digital audio file. Ask for it by its title, Preparing the Way. The easiest way for you to contact us is by using our email address, hope at heraldsofhope.org. Or you can pick up your phone and call us toll-free at 866- 9600292. 9600292. And of course, you can mail your request to The Voice of Hope, Box 3, Breezewood, Pennsylvania 15533. You can also review today's teaching or listen to archived programs by logging onto our website, heraldsofhope.org. To help this ministry financially, you can send a check by mail, or you can donate securely online at heraldsofhope.org You can also call us toll-free at 866 to donate with your credit or debit card. God's grace, accompanied by your fervent prayers and your generous financial support will enable The Voice of Hope to be on the air until Jesus comes in the air. Now don't forget to join me next week for The Voice of Hope as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. And until we meet again,
0: judge and say, you must prepare the way. who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire.